Thank you to our worship team this morning. Their average age was just a hair lower than usual. And we are grateful for our students who are a part of that. We don't really do you know, youth Sundays or anything like that around here because I, really our, our students, our kids, you're all a part of the church now and we're grateful that you're a part of the church now. In fact, this is normally the time where we would send our kindergarten through third graders out to go to children's church, but we don't do that on the fourth Sunday and the fifth Sunday of the month. And, and one of the reasons for that is because kids, we, we value you. We think you're a part of the church today. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it's deep enough that all of us are going to study it for our entire lives and we're never going to fully understand God's revelation to us. But it's clear enough that if you're here and you're five, or if you're here and you're 50, it's clear enough that you can understand enough of God's Word today to know how to be saved and to live a life that glorifies Him. And so kids, we're thankful that you're in the room with us today. We're excited that you're here. We're grateful that you're here. We're, we're grateful we get to open the Bible together with you. Uh, and as I teach, there's some sermon note sheets floating around, and there's some back at the back, and you might have something to write on there. Uh, at your pew. And, and kids, if I say something you don't understand, if there's something in the text that you don't quite understand, write that down. Write that question down. And then as you leave, uh, ask your parent, your grandparent, your aunt, uncle, whoever you're here with, uh, ask them questions about that today. That's one of the ways that you can be active and participating in the time that we spend together in God's Word. Parents, if you have kids in here this morning and and you're concerned about the noises or the fidgets or things like that coming out of your pew. Don't worry about that so much. We're, we're just thankful that God has given us a next generation to disciple. And I'm personally really thankful that we've got folks like Danielle and Gary and the other adults that have worked with our students to help them be a part of leading us in worship this morning. And we, we get to now transition to a time where we open God's Word together. We're going to be in Exodus 19 today. Exodus 19 is on page 63, those black Bibles there in the pew racks in front of you. And we're going to read verses 7 through 15 together. Exodus chapter 19, verses 7 through 15. This is God's Word. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, We will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported, to the people, uh, Moses reported the people's words to the Lord and the Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all, all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No, may, no hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, Be prepared by the third day. Do not even have sexual relations with women. This is God's Word. Would you 
Go to the Lord with me in prayer as we pray over its reading and over our time together. God, we come before you with your word on the table, asking that just as a physical meal provides us the strength to live, God, that your word, this spiritual meal that is before us, would provide us the strength that we need to know you and to grow in you. Lord, we believe your word has power. It has power because the Holy Spirit comes alongside our time and study of it and and unlocks its truth to our heart, God. It's not my words, it's not any eloquence of man that, that really brings about any spiritual change. No, God, it is simply your word and the truth of it worked through your Holy Spirit that brings about new life, that brings about new direction, that brings about change of heart. And so, God, that's what we come before you asking for today. Just that your word would grant us the change of heart that we need to see you clearly, to see the people around us clearly, to understand our own emotions and feelings and hurts and hang-ups and and just everything that goes on inside our heart that we can't uh, even comprehend ourselves sometimes. God, your word holds the answer to all those things. And so, God, we pray that today you would give us clarity from your Holy Spirit about this covenant that you've called Israel and us into God, teach us what it means to embrace that covenant. Teach us what it means to to believe that covenant. And show us how Jesus is our mediator in this covenant that we have with you today. God, we praise you for your word. And we just pray that you would speak to us from it in such a way that we become doers of your word and not hearers only, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, this section of Exodus that we're in, it it mirrors a formal treaty agreement, a formal covenant. Our God, as we saw last week, is a covenant-making God. And this whole extended section of Scripture from Exodus 19 on the one end through Numbers 10 on the other unfolds the terms of God's covenant for us. We saw last week that uh, the covenant begins with God. God initiates it. God starts it off. And that is a covenant of grace. We see today that uh, in this text that God Himself not only invites us into the covenant, but that He is the one who dictates its terms. God dictates what His relationship with mankind will be. And His terms are non-negotiable. God's covenant must be embraced, His covenant must be honored, and it must be mediated. Those are the truths Israel learns from this passage, and when we look back on those terms with the whole counsel of Scripture in mind, when we look back on this covenant through the lens of Christ's finished work on the cross, we're going to see how these truths take on an even fuller meaning for you and I than they had even for those Israelites who first heard them. So, look with me, if you will, at verse 7, where we learn that God's covenant must be embraced. We see here that after Moses came back, he summoned all the elders of the people and set before them the words the Lord had commanded. Then all the people responded together, we will do all the Lord has spoken. And so Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. In verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will always hear when I speak, sorry, the people will hear when I speak to you and will always believe you. Moses is, is kind of like a human ping pong ball in this chapter. He goes, goes up the mountain and hears from God. He comes down the mountain to talk to the people and then he goes back up again and, 
And really, it, it takes about four hours to hike to the summit of Mount Sinai from the spot where it is believed these events took place. And in all that coming and going, we learn that God's covenant must be embraced both by responding and by believing. In our text last week, verses 1-6, through God gave Moses those terms. He said, I carried you out of Egypt on the wings of eagles. I brought you to Myself. He said, now listen to Me and keep My covenant and you will be My special possession. Even though the whole earth, God said, was His, Israel will be a special possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's the promise that God makes as we, as we closed out those first few verses. That's the, the framework for God's relationship with His people. When we talked last week about how we should treat that covenant, that framework that God lays out, we should treat that uh, as something to be honored, something to be respected, something to be entered into solemnly, not like clicking the terms and conditions on Candy Crush or something else when you download that. That's not the type of covenant that we're entering in here. It's much heavier than that. And so Moses comes back to the people. He gives them this summary of everything that God had said. And then what happened? All the people responded together, hey, we're in. Let's do this. And, and so we see that the first thing that God's covenant requires is a response. God doesn't force His people into covenant with Him. He didn't do it 3,500 years ago at Sinai, and He doesn't do it today. Yes, God is sovereign over salvation. Yes, Hebrews 12 calls Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, or as a lot of us memorize that verse in the old King James Version, the author and finisher of our faith. That's true. It's also true that God doesn't bring about our salvation based on our goodness. Just like Israel had no power to rescue itself from Egypt, Israel couldn't earn their freedom. Our goodness neither earns or sustains our salvation. In fact, the Bible teaches that none of us are good enough to even seek out salvation on our own unless God acts. Paul writes in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. Not even one. There's, there's no element. Uh, Paul leaves no doubt there, right? There's no element of salvation that depends on our goodness. I want to be really clear on that. God initiates our salvation. We learn in Ephesians 1 that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And then in Ephesians 2, that we're, not saved, that we're saved by grace, not from works, so that nobody can boast. Those things are true. And at the same time, when God, through His Holy Spirit, brings our dead heart to life, we are responsible to respond. Did, just think about the way this chapter plays itself out. God calls Moses up the mountain. He gives Moses the words to tell Israel. Moses hikes back down the mountain for four hours, calls the elders of the people together, has this big you know, uh, church members meeting here in, at the foot of Sinai, explains the covenant. All the people said they're in. Moses hikes four hours back up the mountain to tell God everything that Israel said. Did God need Moses to do that? God knew, right? God knew what they were going to say. God knew what they did say. God already knew. God didn't need Moses to come back up the mountain to tell him. God knows everything. There's one pastor that I know puts it often and well. Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? 
Like God knows everything. Nothing is a surprise to Him. God knew, yet He still required their response. God presented Israel with the terms of the covenant and expected them to respond. And they did. And just like Israel had to respond to the terms of covenant offered by God, you and I today are required to accept the terms of the covenant God offers to us. We're under a different covenant than they were. Their covenant was meant to point to ours. Theirs theirs was symbolized by the blood of sacrificed animals. Ours was secured by the blood of Jesus Christ Himself. See, our sin earns us death, but God, instead of giving us the death that we deserve, promised to substitute Christ's death for our own if we repent. Those are the terms, generally speaking, of the covenant that God offers to His people today. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Praise God for that. Amen. Patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. It means to turn away If we don't turn away from our sin and turn to God, then we will perish. God's covenant must be embraced. And the first step we take toward embracing it, just like Israel on that day heard the terms that God we're in, the first step toward embracing the covenant that God offers to you and to me today is to repent. But it's followed by belief. Look at what God tells Moses after he comes back, reports the Israelites' response. He says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that all the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. You see, I need to be as clear here as I can be, and I've been praying that I can teach this passage this week without being confusing. You're saved. You belong to God. As soon as you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ for salvation, that only happens when the Holy Spirit works in your heart gifts you the faith to believe, and at that moment and from every moment forward, you belong to God. But salvation is not a one-time transaction that stops right there in that moment. The people agreed to the covenant. But then God goes on to tell Moses that He was going to reveal to them in such a way that they will always believe. Salvation is not a moment you remember. It's a relationship that you live out for the rest of your days. Moses is acting as God's ambassador to the people here in verse 9. He says he's going to come near to them in a way that he never has before, and he's doing it so that they may believe. Folks, if Israel doesn't believe in God by this point, and by believing God, I mean, if Israel doesn't believe that God is real at this point, I can't help them. I mean, think about the things that they've seen. They saw the Nile River turn into blood. They saw the plague of frogs. They saw the plague of locusts. These people walked across a dry Red Sea and then watched the most powerful army on the planet get swept away when the water rushed back in. These are people that believe God is real. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a belief that changes their lives. It's impossible that they don't believe God exists, but belief that God exists and belief that God is God are two different things. 
James writes that the demons even believe. So we're not going for a belief that God is real, for a belief that God exists. We're talking about something deeper, something that affects every aspect of your being, every part of your life. God's covenant must be embraced in a way that is belief-causing change. The two types of belief here, belief just that God is real and exists, and belief that causes change, belief that leads us uh, that is a fruit of salvation. They can be illustrated by the way that you treat your car in a lot of ways. Hear me out here. Um, some of you, if you're driving along, and that little orange light, you know the one, comes on. It says check engine. There's two responses to that in life. Response A, you're driving and the check engine light comes on. You stop immediately, right? All right, we've got to get to the mechanics. I have to get this checked out today. The check engine light is on. I've got a problem. I'm going to go get it fixed. How many of you are that guy or gal? There's a few of you that are willing to admit it. Very good. Some of you I expected. Um, not all of you, but some of you I expected. How many of you see that check engine light and you go, huh, that's a problem for future Chris to deal with? How many of you are that guy? Right? Okay. The first person, the person that says, hey, lights on, I've got to do something. That's belief that leads to change. The, other, the rest of us, right now, that's belief that, I mean, the, I checked, the engine's still there, we're good. Right? I don't know what it wants me to do at this point. Okay, belief that leads to change. You believe there's a problem, you believe something has happened, and so your behavior changes. Okay, that's embracing God's covenant in a way that causes change. That's the kind of belief that John wrote a gospel to gender John 30 and 31. He tells us why he wrote the gospel at the end of the book. John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. The belief that is a sign of eternal life is a belief that changes the way you live your life right now, and that forces the question, church, have you embraced the covenant that God offers? This is God's covenant on God's terms, and it requires you to embrace it by responding in such a way that leads to a life characterized by a belief that changes your actions, that changes your affections, that changes your attitudes. One pastor put it this way, the gospel shouldn't just be a ticket to heaven, but it should be the core of our entire lives. And just so we're clear on what the gospel is, that's a church where we throw on, you probably don't hear if you're, because uh, we're blessed at this church, not just to have multiple generations here, we're blessed to have all sorts of different backgrounds represented here, and there's new people coming into our gathering almost every week, and so we're thankful that you're here, and we know that some of you are seekers, some of you, you, you may believe that God exists, but you've never, never experienced God in the way that I'm talking about, you're not in covenant relationship with Him, and so what is this gospel that we talk about so much? So one of my fears as a pastor is that coming from a good place, we, we desire to, to see people saved, so we focus on that decision point, getting you to trust and follow Christ, and sometimes we forget to explain as a part of our uh, sermons or as a part of our Sunday school class or as we're teaching our kids, we forget to explain 
in the broadest terms possible. What is the gospel? It's that God, who is good, who is, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, God created everything that we see. He spoke the world into existence, and He is good. And He created humanity good. Everything God created was good. Humanity, though, when, when placed into a perfect garden chose instead of honoring God as good, chose to rebel against Him. Adam sinned and, and every human sins has followed in the footsteps of our first father Adam and we have sinned as well. And that sin earns us death. It earns us separation from God. It also earns us His wrath. But instead of pouring out His wrath on us, instead of destroying sin, which is what holiness does, as we'll see in just a minute, instead of doing that, God actually came to us with a peace treaty. We declared war on Him. He had all the power, and instead of using that power, He became both the, the, the price and the payment for our sin in Jesus Christ, the God-man. Fully God, fully man. He came, suffered, lived a perfect life, fulfilled this law that God is about to unpack for us in the Old Testament, did everything right, allowed Himself to be sacrificed in our place so that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. See, Jesus was crucified, but He didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day. He ascended back to the Father as a sign that God accepted His sacrifice. And the Bible tells us that everyone who calls in the name of Jesus Christ for salvation will be saved. And so if you're here today and that's you, the only thing that I pray that you do before you leave this place is repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation today and tomorrow and to eternity. But there's a whole different group of people that are often represented in churches, maybe are represented in our church as well, where you've... I mean, how many testimonies have you heard like this church? You've... Uh, walk down an aisle, you've spent your whole life in church, you've heard the Bible taught, but you've never believed in such a way that your life was changed. You had an experience at camp, you had an experience at a revival meeting, you had an experience on a mission trip, or, or perhaps you just grew up in church your whole life and just assumed that because your parents had faith, you had faith as well. And church, that's, that, it, it's a scary thing to believe in God and to not believe in God in, in the way that that it is required to enter into His covenant. It's a confusing thing. Paul tells the church at First Corinthians, in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, to examine themselves. Church, do you believe in such a way that leads to life? Because that, that is illustrated for us in verses 10-13 through 13 where we learn that God's covenant has to be honored. One of my fears as a pastor is that we, we have people who who we interact with often as a church, or that I just get to know personally, and, and you've, again, you, you've been a part of a church at one point, but, and you know the lingo, you know who God is, you know what the Bible is, you even memorized some verses when you were a kid, but you lead your life in such a way that your life looks exactly like the lives of the people around you, and we don't recognize that this covenant God has called us into, it is every day, it changes the, everything about who we are, it has to be, if we're really in it, it has to be honored in the way that we live, in the way that we interact with people, in the way that we submit to God. This covenant must be honored. Verse 10. 
And the Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the light of all the people. See, here we get a change. This marks a change in the way that God is dealing with His people in the book of Exodus. He'd been meeting with Moses, but now He's going to address the whole nation. Now everyone gets to hear what Moses has been hearing. Something big is happening, church. Moses is up and down the mountain and up and down the mountain, and there's no one that's more excited to hear this news than Moses. He says, I get to go down, and I don't have to climb this hill again. Stay down, and God will come to us. It says, prepare yourself to be in the presence of the Lord. Consecrate, in verse 10, means to set apart. Set yourself apart. Get yourself ready, because God is coming to you, and He gives instructions. Verse 10, hear me on this one, kids. Verse 10, wash your clothes. Yes, kids, the Bible says to do your own laundry, and the sooner you learn, the more godly everyone in your household will be. Okay, maybe I'm just speaking to myself and not to the whole church. There. Anyway, um, that's the free part. It's not really part of the sermon. But there is a point to the steps God is telling Israel to take. These aren't just arbitrary. He's saying, make yourself clean. Prepare for the third day. He's around the mountain. We've, we've all scrambled because company is coming over, right? Grandma's coming to town. Aunts and uncles are coming. People from work are coming over. And the house does not look the way the house should look. Monica is a terrific housekeeper, but there's nine of us in our home, and often we overwhelm her. And so if you've been in our house, or you're ever in our house, we've had a number of you over, we'd love to have more of you over, I can't take responsibility for what happens to you if you open any door that is closed. Because the likelihood is that despite Monica's hard work and all the things that she tries to encourage the rest of us to do, that when we knew you were coming, we had a Chinese fire drill in our house where it's, all right, everyone clean everything. And by clean, I mean just get it out of the public areas, hide it in the bedroom, put it in the closet. And so if you open that door and you die in a crush of Legos and ponytail holders, I can't save you. Because that's what it always is. Legos and ponytail holders, if you're missing them, they're at my house. And if you come to our house and you get distracted, I'm going to put them in your car, in the bed of your truck, and get them out because we're collecting all of them. That's not the type of cleanup God is after. God isn't telling Israel to hide their junk. Something more significant is going on here. He's reminding them that while He's intimate enough to be in relationship with them, He remains holy on a level that they can't comprehend. And that's a problem for Israel because they're unclean. God is so holy that sinful humanity can't fully come into His presence. So here's a big picture Bible principle that this passage illustrates for us. Sin can't stand in the presence of holiness. If that which is holy comes into contact with anything unclean and alive, that living thing is going to die. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve were no longer clean. Now in God's grace, they didn't die that day, but Romans 5 tells us sin entered the world that day, and the penalty for sin is 
death. And so in Exodus 19, the people have to be clean in order to come into God's presence. It's a physical reminder of a spiritual truth. Nothing unclean, nothing sinful can come into God's presence. If it does, it dies. That's why no one can go up on the mountain. If you go into God's presence with sin, you'll be destroyed. You won't be able to handle it. That's how holy God is. This is a huge moment, God coming down the mountain to be with His people. And so God gives them time to prepare. He's not coming today, He's coming in three days. And over those three days, their focus was to be on God Himself. That's why there's a pause put on the relationship between the husband and wife in verse 15. He wants their focus to be solely on Him. God's covenant is to be honored with our entire lives, church. And because God is intimate, we run the risk of treating our relationship with Him entirely too flippantly. And we've, we've bounced back and forth on this in church history, right? There was a time when the church in general, we, we viewed God as so transcendent, so big. That's why we built giant cathedrals and all these architectural things that were supposed to point us to the bigness of God. If you go into a, you know, to a, a you know, pre-Reformation cathedral that's still around, or some of the, the, the massive early churches that were built in this country, you go in and you feel really small. I remember going into the, it's a Catholic church that's on the, uh, in the French Quarter in New Orleans. I don't even remember the name of the church now. But one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever been in in my life. I've got one or two people here who have been to the, to, uh, to, to Vatican City, the Sistine Chapel. You walk into these buildings and you feel really small because you're supposed to. These structures were made to remind us how big our God is. And so there's times in church history where we've gone that way. Reminding us how huge God is. How, how powerful He is. How small we are in comparison. But we're not really in that era in the church right now. We are uh, much more consumed with how personal God is. And that's a good thing in some ways. Right? God is personal, but we can't forget that even though God is personal, God is knowable, God has intimately made Himself available to us, He is still transcendent. He is still all-powerful. He still requires our worship. He requires our purity. God broke into human history and sacrificed His only begotten Son to win our salvation. And He didn't do that, church, to win an hour a week out of your busy schedule. See, this three-day period was a time for Israel to clean house spiritually speaking, to prepare themselves to be in the presence of the Lord. Do you realize, church, that you get to be in the presence of God in a way that all these people could only dream about? Mount Sinai becomes a stand-in for the temple that would uh, be built later by Solomon in, in the weeks ahead as we, as we continue studying through um, Exodus and as you would get on into the further uh, the, the idea of the law. Uh, Mount Sinai stands in for the temple. And the center of the temple that Solomon came along to build later in the Old Testament was the holy place, the place where God's Spirit resided. It's where the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement once a year to offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of Israel's sins. No one else could go in there because it's where the Spirit of God was residing. If they did, they would die because sin can't stand in the presence of a holy God. That's so why no one can go up the mountain. That's where the presence of God was. But church, you have the presence of God alive within you through the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. He writes, Don't you yourselves know 
that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you. The temple of God isn't in Jerusalem. The temple of God isn't a building. And I know some of us grew up calling this God's house. And please, I don't mean this as an affront, but please don't think this is God's house. That is really limiting our good God. God doesn't dwell in a house. God dwells in people. And this truth has two implications that we need to understand based on this passage. First, what a heartbreak it is when God's people indwelt by His Holy Spirit, fall into sin. Church, sin is serious. Israel had to clean up its spiritual house to get a visit from God. You have God living in you, and so you know that every sin that you commit is is a sin in the presence of a holy God. You recognize that our sin makes us stupid, right? That's something that We've all been there. But it makes us dumb in such a way that we actually lapse into momentary practical atheism when we're trying to sin and hide it. There's times when we are on our own or we're doing things that we don't think anyone else is going to see. And so we say, well, no one else is going to know about this. No one else will know that I did this. Whether it's a habit or words that you say or thoughts that you think, you say, well, I'm the only one that knows about this, so I can get away with it. I can do what I want because I'm alone or because it's only happening in here or it only happens online or on my phone or whatever. I I can get away with it because no one knows. And if you're an atheist, that's functional. But if you believe in the God of the Bible, you recognize that God not only knows your thoughts, but God resides in you through His Holy Spirit. James tells us it's our own evil desire that causes us to sin. We'd like to think that none of us would give in to sin if God were in the room with us. But if we live like we can hide something from God, we're living as functional atheists. We're trying to hide something from the God that we know already knows. Church, if this passage causes us to do nothing, let it cause us to resolve like Israel during these three days to eradicate the uncleanness in our lives. The Puritan John famously wrote, be killing sin or sin killing you. Church, how can you consciously kill the sin in your life this week? The second thing this truth implies for us is that we can, even though we're sinful, we can come into the presence of God. I know that we see all throughout Scripture that no uncleanness comes into God's presence, but we can, and and we acknowledge that we're not clean, so how does that work? Well, if the Holy Spirit, if God Himself is alive in us, then it must mean that we can somehow do it. We can come into God's presence in some way. It becomes a little clearer in verse 14. It's all about the mediator. Then Moses came down from the mountain, verse 14, to the people and consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Israel had Moses to stand in their place, to plead their case before God. But church, we have one better than Moses. This is where we see the covenant has to be mediated. If you turn with me in your Bibles, if you still got them there, to Hebrews 12. We've already had some verses read from Hebrews as a part of our service this morning. It's on page 1069 in those black Bibles that are in front of you. The covenant has to be mediated. Someone has to stand between God and His people. The difference between you and I and the Israelites is that we have the mediator, Jesus Christ. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, 
to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect. See, the author of Hebrews takes us from Mount Sinai in Exodus to Mount Zion where we'll see Jesus standing as the triumphant Lamb over in Revelation 14. And where we read here in Hebrews that we'll stand along with angels. Think with me for a minute about what happens in the Bible when angels show up. We don't have a a great theology, a great understanding of the ministry of angels, I don't think, just broadly speaking. Somewhere along the line, you know, we just had Valentine's Day. We've reduced angels somehow to like little half-naked babies with wings, right? That's not the biblical image of angels. The first thing that an angel says when they show up is get up. Because when an angel shows up, people tremble in fear. Now, that might, be a, that might be where the baby image came from. I don't know. Babies can be terrifying sometimes. Probably not, though. But when an angel shows up, an angel is always saying, get up, don't be afraid. Because angels are set apart. Angels are holy. Angels are set apart for God's holy work. They are His messengers. They reflect His glory. And because His glory is being reflected to sinful humanity, sinful humanity falls on its face when an angel shows up. But in Hebrews 12, this vision, this idea that the author is pointing is humanity doesn't fall on its face. No, we're right there in the party with them. That's what verse 22 says, but, and, and verse 24 shows us the difference. Okay, why can we be right there amidst God's glory? Why can we be right there amidst the angels and not trembling? Verse 24, and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. You see the difference between Sinai and Zion is that now you've been united with the mediator. Moses the mediator failed all the time. He was a great man, but it was sinner. So sinful in fact that he never makes it to the promised land. Our mediator is Jesus Christ. He is perfect in every way. He never failed and He stands in our place. We have to have someone to be what we can't be because remember our sinfulness would cause us to be destroyed in the sight in, in the presence of God's holiness. But God no longer looks on our sinfulness. He looks at us and sees the righteousness of our mediator. Second Corinthians five twenty one, Paul wrote, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not our sinfulness that God sees. It's not the result of our works. It's the result of Christ's righteousness. And that's why we can be in God's presence. That's why the Holy Spirit can live in us. When we read this Old Testament passage with new covenant eyes, we see how Moses and Israel are acting out our salvation, church. God has dealt with us. He has offered us a covenant. We don't define the terms of that covenant. He does that. And His terms are non-negotiable. We embrace that covenant by responding to it through repentance first, then 
honoring it with every part of our lives and looking to Jesus as our mediator who sustains us even in our failure, even in our struggle, even in our shortcoming. We are sustained by the one who stands, in fact, the one who hung in our place. When we view God's covenant that way, we're reminded every day of His grace toward us. This is a covenant we don't earn, we don't deserve, church. Yet God has given it to us. And so how do we respond? Do you respond in repentance and faith, or do we respond by running and hiding from it? Church, respond to God's covenant today by embracing it and honoring it as we run together to the feet of our mediator, Jesus Christ, who became sacrifice for us, who died the death that we deserve, so we can have freedom, we can have life everlasting. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, your word is so good. Lord, like Israel waiting at the foot of the mountain for Moses to come back and, and, and tell them what you said, God, to give them your word, Lord. You have given us your word to have, to take home with us, to be able to, to access and to read and to hear any time, God. And so make us a people of your word. Make us a people eager to hear your word, a people eager to respond to your word. And show us, God, teach us through your word and empower us through your spirit to live in such a way that we respond with everything that we do. God, let us see our whole life in light of the covenant relationship that you have called us to. Lord, it changes how we, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we, how we view our neighbor, how we view our spouse, how we view our kids, the goals we set for ourselves, the, the way that we the way we spend our recreational time. God, it, it, it colors all of those things. And so God, help us to see all of life through the lens of this covenant relationship you have called us into. Lord, there's some within the sound of my voice today that have never entered into this covenant relationship with us that you offer, God. And you tell us in your word that to enter that relationship, we, we repent of our sins, turn away from our sins, we follow Jesus, God. It's that simple. So help us today to do just that. Lord, for those of us that belong to you, God, maybe we haven't honored your covenant in the way that we should. God, we've allowed sinful habits to creep back in. We've allowed brokenness in our attitudes. We've allowed brokenness in our actions, God. And, and that brokenness, God, it is sin. And it is sin that is an affront to the God who saved us. God, help us today to see our sin the way that you see our sin. And, and help us to hate our sin. Lord, help us to repent of our sin. Our sin is serious. Help us to view it as such. God, thank You for giving us a mediator to stand in a place that we could never stand. 
and to empower us to live in a way that we on our own could never live. God, we praise You for Your goodness today. And we pray this in Your Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen.